Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. In honor of Pride, Mart Crowley's play, The Boys in the Band, which deals with the lives of gay men in the 1960s, burst upon the off-Broadway scene in 1968 and ran for a thousand performances, it became a film directed by William Friedkin two years later. In 2002, Mart Crowley wrote a sequel titled The Men from the Boys, which took place 35 years later, after Stonewall and after the AIDS epidemic. It premiered at San Francisco's New Conservatory Theater on November 9, 2002, and I had a chance to speak with Mart Crowley shortly before the official opening as he worked with director Ed Decker on the project. This past year, Broadway saw a revival of The Boys in the Band, featuring Zachary Quinto, Matt Bomer, Andrew Rannells, and Jim Parsons. Several members of that cast, including Mario Cantone and Dennis O'Hare, returned to their roles for a live stream of The Men from the Boys, directed by Zachary Quinto, which airs on Friday, June 26th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Playbill.com slash Pride Plays. Sadly, Mark Crowley died of a heart attack on March 7th, 2020, at the age of 84. For many people, of course, they remember the boys in the band, and here we are some uh, 35 years later. 34. Next year is the anniversary year, so I'm hoping that some places will do it in terms of its historical context. You haven't disappeared. You've kept working. You have several plays. Is that correct? That is correct. And there, there are some weird credits, too, in television that kept me going through the years. What are the weird credits? It's weird from the beginning because the way I got my first job before the boys in the band was I went home for Christmas from college in 1956 and Ilya Kazan was shooting Baby Doll with Carl Malden and Carol Baker. And Tennessee Williams was sitting practically next to my house. I uh, just uh, ingratiated myself, shall I say, later Kazan told me that I was the most unrelenting past he'd ever met. Uh, but he did write out a, a, a pass for me to get on the set on a napkin in, jo- in Doe's Eat Place, and uh, where they all con- congregated every night and had a few drinks and real unwound. I said, oh, God, I've got to come work for you. I've got to be involved in this business. He said, no, go back to college, get your education. When you're, when you're finished, come to New York and look me up. So that's just what I did when I, when I hit New York. I didn't even have to look him up. I, I, I got a job on a Mickey Rooney quickie three-week shoot on a remake of The Last Mile as a production assistant. So I had some experience when I met him. And I, saw, I was walking home from work one night on 57th Street when all the art galleries there, and I saw this man looking in the window at a painting. And I thought, that sort of hunched back man looks like Elio Kazan. I walked over to the back of him and said, Mr. Kazan, he turned around. And I said, I'm that boy from uh, Mississippi. He said, I know exactly who you are. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on the last mile with Mickey Rooney. And he said, well, I thought you wanted to come work for me. And I said, oh, I do, I do. This will be over in another week. And so he said, come come over to the office. We'll see what we can get you to do. They were doing the post-production on a film called Wild River with Montgomery Clift. What did you do for uh, Kazan at that point? Well, we started preparing the next picture, which happened to be Splendor in the Grass. Well, I did everything at that point from, you know, uh, what we call bicycle. In New York, it's a little different than on a lot in Hollywood, but 
I did everything from bicycle, the script and revision changes from William Inch's apartment in Sutton Place to 125th Street, bicycling meaning I took the subway. <sighs> and I made Greek salads. Kazan taught me how to make a Greek salad that he liked, so I made his lunch every day. You said you socialized for a bit with Tennessee Williams. Yeah. What, what was your impression of him? He wasn't any different than the ordinary public perceived him. You know, his actions in private were just like they were in public. I remember that I had to go to the airport in a car to pick him up. Why they didn't send a professional driver to get this famous playwright, I don't know. They send this 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid out to Kennedy to, it was called Idlewild then, to pick up Tennessee Williams, who was coming in from London from the shooting of uh, Suddenly Last Summer. And I guess my driving, <laughs> when I drove him to the studio in the Bronx from, from Idlewild, oh, must have got to him or something did. Anyway, he had a tremendous panic attack in the seat beside me and said, can you get off this whatever it was? We call them freeways in California. They call them expressways, I think, in New York. And, and find a package store. And I said, yeah. So it turned into Bonfire of the Vanities in a way. We took an exit. We got into a totally wrong neighborhood. By wrong, I mean it was very threatening out. South Bronx. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm looking for a package store. So I find one, park the car very quickly in a not, you know, red zone, run in, buy a fifth of vodka, come back out, and hand it to him, and he just tears the cap off and drinks out of the bottle, but calms down. And I said, now let me figure out how the hell we get out of here. And we found our ways back to uh, Gold Medal Studios in the Bronx. Then this was for the shoot of uh, his play. Well, it was originally called Battle of Angels, and then he rewrote it, and it was called Orpheus Descending, and then a film version was called The Fugitive Kind. Did you get a chance to meet uh, Brando? Mm. I drove Brando as well, but I didn't like Brando, and um, I liked Anna Magnani very, very much. And he was so cruel to her. Brando was so cruel to Anna Magnani, really setting her up seductively, like tonight's the night, baby. And it was all to rattle her performance. And he got her right up to the point of, you know, the candles are going to be lit low now and the wine is going to be poured. And then he turned on her and it just threw her for a loop as it would anyone. And he wanted to destroy her performance. So I went to the production manager and I said, I don't want to drive Marlon Brando anymore. He's such a, can I say it on the air, prick. And uh, I'd rather drive Anna. She's just marvelous and marvels to me. Well, he said, okay. So I started driving Anna, and actually I got Tennessee in the bargain because they were friends. And whenever he'd come to the studio, he would uh, accompany her home. Every morning I'd pick her up about 6 or 5.30 because they had to go to work on her, you know, early and get her on the set by 8. And so... Um, one morning, I remember, she was in she, no, no makeup, the hair, you know. I mean, she looked like Anna Magnani's Anna Magnani, the maid, you know. And uh, you never recognized in a million years. And she sat up front with me in the car, and it was pouring rain. And as we drove slowly through these strip, slippery streets of the Bronx trying to get to gold medal studios, she was just looking out the window, and her English was shaky, you know, so... I I wasn't saying anything. I was watching the road carefully. And she, I heard, just looking out the window, saying to herself, I hate these goddamn Bronx. (laughs) (laughs) What did Tennessee think of Marlon? Well, I think, you know, they had had that marvelous relationship during... uh, Streetcar. yeah, Yeah. And actually, Stanley was written older if you see some early drafts of the script. And uh, along came this 23-year-old who came all the way from New York up to Tennessee's cottage on the Cape just to audition for him and put it in the bag, so to speak. And so Tennessee said, you know, well, Kazan had already sent him because they had worked in a dreadful flop called Truckline Cafe. 
uh, you know, there was no question about it. You know, he just gave a brilliant reading. So Kazan said, what the hell? Make, he's 23, Jessica Tandy's 33. It, it'll work, you know. And it did. <laughs> Boy, yeah. did it. Let's move on to the career of Mark Crowley because we started by saying you, you said you— I could talk about would, Williams all day. <laughs> you said you had uh, some very odd— career moves and of course one of them uh, is something that's coming out now which yeah, is an, the latest weird an, an Eloise <clears throat> book called Eloise Takes a Bath and that's spelled B-A-W-T-H Had you done other other Eloise? Well I had started another book with Kay Thompson in 62 because I'd also been to art school and I drew and, right. and so I was illustrating a book of hers called The Fox and the Fig. I was not the first choice, or nor even the first try. She'd already been through Joe Eula, who, you know, is famous for all the Liza Minnelli theatrical ads and lots of beautiful fashion work. She asked Andy Warhol to contribute a, a sample, and he did, and they thought it was too decorative. So he was 86, and um, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I was in Rome, and she moved there. We had some mutual friends who introduced us. And she said pretty much what you did. Well, you know, what do you do? And I said, I've just been to art school. And she said, ah, come to my apartment in the morning. Sounds like you uh, you stumbled on some of the more interesting uh, elements in your long and varied career. I did, but that that one didn't have a that one didn't have a happy ending. But now, forty years later, with Kay dead, I think this is a very happy ending that I had a chance to revise and complete a book that she started 40 years ago. Well, Mark Crowley, let's let's move on a little bit here to uh, the writing of The Boys in the Band. During that period, when you were doing your work with Ilya Kazan and working with Tennessee Williams and all of those people, did you mm-hmm. always, did you want to be a playwright? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was working all the time. As a matter of fact, I said, I, I wrote Tennessee a letter and I said, I am the boy that drives you home from work every night. We're both from Mississippi, and I want to be a playwright too. Would you have some time to talk to me about it? And he never acknowledged it until one night. He was sort of in his cups, and it was late. And he looked from the back seat and said, you, you that boy that wrote me that letter? And I said, yeah, yes, Mr. Williams. And he said, what do you want to talk to me about? And I said, playwriting. And he said, well, what are you doing right now? And I said, nothing. He said, would you like to come up and have a drink? And I said, oh, my God, I would just be so honored if you weren't too tired. And he said, I'm not tired now, but I'll be tired in 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So you went up there and? Well, three hours later, we were all loaded on daiquiris and hadn't eaten anything yet. And Hal Wallace was calling from Hollywood to, to try to sell him Shirley MacLaine for Alma Weinmuller in Summer and Smoke. He wouldn't buy, and he stumbled back into the living room and said to me, what do you think of Shirley MacLaine as Alma Weinmuller? I said, oh, never, Tennessee, <laughs> never. I mean, it's got to be Jerry Page or nobody. Did he, during that period, offer you any tips? And if he did, did you take him up on those tips? No, we. I don't think we ever talked about playwriting. I just talked to him about my great admiration for him and the, you know, um, my my utter regret and uh, of never having seen Streetcar on the stage. Got there just a few years too late. I saw Cat and uh, I saw everything from Cat on, but uh, I I wish I could have seen Streetcar. Well, Mark Crowley, what brought you to write? A play like Boys in the Band. It was it was a, a, an extraordinary breakthrough play, though obviously when you were writing it, you didn't think breakthrough at all. No, no. Well, one thing that, that contributed to it was on Splendor in the Grass, I became friendly with, I transferred my affections from Kazan to Natalie Wood, and um, she knew I wanted to be a writer, and she got West Side Story during that before Splendor was completed. In fact, Westside had started shooting in New York already, and they were waiting for a Maria to be cast. So she said, I can't possibly get out of here. I got to go fly back to L.A., start dance rehearsal on Monday. Who's going to pack up the apartment? Who's going to get everything? You don't have a job. Kazan has already told you that he's going to Greece for three years to prepare America, America. So 
I'll tell you what. If you'll pack up the apartment, see that everything is shipped back, I'll go to William Morris and we'll get you an agent on the West Coast. I said, deal. So I did, and she did, and I got a job. And I wrote an original script for her. And it was bought by Fox. And uh, we got it set up into production. And two weeks before production, Zana canceled the picture. That was the first blow in Hollywood. And then the second blow was I did indeed write a pilot for Betty Davis for Quaker Oats, of all things. But she was a diva, you know, and she could never have adjusted to the the pace of a television series. So Quaker Oats canceled that before they even showed it. It was a dead pilot on arrival. However, I did become friendly with her, which was something. And um, the third time, I got a, hired by Paramount to do an original, and uh, I got put in one of those cubby holes, like in Sunset Boulevard. In fact, I was in the same one that Betty Schaefer and Joe Gillis write, try to write, Tonight's the Night, or whatever the hell they're working on. And uh, <laughs> then uh, I got fired. So I was broke, depressed, angry, very angry. So there was a European actor coming in to shoot a film. I knew him. And uh, a very wealthy woman whose husband owned the New York Post and had four children, a Swedish nanny, a Chinese couple who made and served dinner, all these kind of Hispanic gardeners, and blah, blah, blah. It was international house, you know. So it was Diana Lynn, the actress, if you remember her from the 40s in Preston Sturge's movies. And she called me up and she said, Mart, would you house it? Well, we're going to take our yacht and, and go through the Panama Canal to Nassau and then fly the children there. We're not going to put them through all this. And she said, if anybody falls down the stairs and breaks their neck, nobody can call the doctor in English around here. So I said, okay. And I moved into this glorious mansion that Bill Cosby later bought from after she died on Tower Road in Beverly Hills, right around the corner from the Selznick's. In fact, I used to give people directions to the house by saying, well, you go up the Tower Road and turn left at the Selznick's. I thought turn left at the Selznick's would be a good title for a book, you know, <laughs> how to get to me. Right. <laughs> so... Um, there I was sitting in the laps of luxury, but earning no money except the income from the European actor who was staying in my sublet apartment. And I thought, I've got to do something. I'll be here seven weeks. So I started scribbling on bed. I, as the, the Chinese a servant brought me my breakfast on a tray into my bed, uh, I just picked up a yellow legal pad and started scribbling, you know. And, and that was Poison the Band. Yeah. And about a week later, the pages were all piling up, so I decided to unzip the Olivetti <laughs> and go down to the library and start typing out the notes first, and then just going from there. The kids would come home from school in the afternoon. They were fine. They had a Swedish nanny looking after them. And I remember Matthew uh, Hall was about 10 years old, and he'd say, Uncle Mark, what are you writing today? I always say, I'm writing a play, I'm writing a play, I'm writing a play. Well, the characters in the play uh, are apparently based on people you knew, or at least so you, so you later said. Mm -hmm. They were, and me, you know, I mean, there's a dash of me in all of them. But um, there's also uh, your character who, uh, who pops up in several of your plays in obviously three plays at least, The Boys in the Band, Breeze from the Gulf, and now The Men from the Boys, is Michael. You know, his initials are MC. He's Michael Connolly. I'm Mark Crowley. So, I mean, not too hard to figure out. Uh, the other characters, uh, Emery, the very effeminate man, or Harold, the, quote, ugly pockmarked Jew, or Donald, the... Uh, I guess the more suave guy, who are the main other characters beside Michael. Mm -hmm. Are they specifically based on people or are they composites? Both. Uh, Harold was specifically based on a fellow called Howard Jeffrey, who was my best friend, and Jerome Robbins' uh, personal assistant. He taught Natalie all the dances on West Side Story, and that's how I met him. And Emery is a composite of three guys that I knew. One I went to school with, one I met in Hollywood, 
and I can't even remember who the third one was now, but I remember there were three. Uh, oh, oh, it was a guy called Emery. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a tough one to remember. Yeah, that is a tough <laughs> one to remember. So um, that's why he's an E for Emery for Emery. And I just used his name because I liked it. You know, it wasn't, uh, it, you know, overused like right. Joe, Jim, John, Jack. And Donald? O'Donnell was a real close friend of mine. In fact, the plays are dedicated. That play, The Boys in the Band, is dedicated, if you notice in the dedication page, to Howard Jeffrey, who was Harold, and to Douglas Murray, who was Donald. And uh, they were quite a different part, and they were very proprietary about me. They despised each other. And I could never see them, you know, like the three of us. That was impossible. But it was either me with Harold or me with Donald. But you got them all in the same room. Well, whenever in your they play. came across each other, you know, they would just sneer. And uh, actually, Howard was the uh, more acerbic and and uh, faster one on the draw, if you will. But Donald was a real intellectual and uh, practically er- taught me everything I know. You know, I mean, he was always shoving. How I remember he gave me Mr. Bridge to read and then Mrs. Bridge and then Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. <laughs> I think I wrote all, read all of those things. Well, he was the, my, uh, my, my leading, what do you call it, you know, reading list. The Boys in the Band, did you expect after its emergence, did you expect the reaction that you received and did you, were you astonished at the fact that they actually did want to make a movie out of it? Well, uh, no, I didn't expect it, but um, I can't claim complete, you know, like I was in a cocoon not knowing what I was doing because I was warned by too many people, that, people that I had worked for. Dominic Dunn had me under contract at a place called Four Star Television, where I wrote the Betty Davis pilot, by the way. And by the way, Billy Friedkin, who eventually directed the picture, was about two stages away directing the Smothers Brothers show, and I never even met him then. And it was on the old Republic lot. All I can remember is that I could open my when I opened my window, I could see Roy Rogers and Trigger's hoof prints outside the window. And then I comforted myself by thinking Nathaniel West also wrote here too. But when I was writing this play, I, I, I told Dominic Dunn about about it, what I was doing. And he really seriously thought maybe I was having a nervous breakdown. Uh, he said, you know, I think it's wonderful. I'd, my contract there had run out. I remember I went to a party at a, a Malibu beach house, and he looked at me looking like a sad sack in the corner and said, come on, Mark, let's go for a walk on the beach. We took two glasses of white wine in those days and started walking down the sands barefoot. He said, what are you doing? I told him about the boys in the band. He listened, and he saw how passionate I was about it. And he heard what the content was. And he turned to me and he said, I think it's really very therapeutic of you to keep working. But listen, Mart, if nobody wants to do this play, don't let it throw you, please. Was there any other play, any other film, anything that was about gay men in the way that Boys in the Band was. No, not the way it was, but I mean, you know, there were other plays. There's a compendium of plays of the 20th century that's coming out from Applause Books in which the Boys in the Band is included that go back to um, the early roots. Uh, I should think that the most uh, famous ones, well, famous to me, I mean, because I knew the history quite well, the Green Bay Tree, in which Laurence Olivier was in, and uh, The Well of Loneliness for Lesbians, uh, which was first a novel by Radcliffe Hall and then was translated for the stage. The Captive, which got closed on Broadway the same week that Mae West's Sex was closed. So there is some history there. Yeah, Sex wasn't about gays, but she did write one after that called The Drag, which was closed in Jersey, let alone New York. I met her once, and that's the first thing that she said. She said, I wrote this play 30 years ago. It closed after one performance in Joyce. Boys in the Band seemed, when I saw the film at least, a few years later, it seemed to me that you took a little bit 
or at least the sense, maybe I'm wrong, of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf because there is that kind of party atmosphere, throw these people together and watch the sparks fly. Yeah, a lot of people have asked me about that, and I can't deny it. I was I was in the thrall of Albee, and he actually was one of the people that helped get this produced because he, with two partners, Richard Barr, who had been an actor in Orson Welles' Mercury Theater and become a producer, produced Virginia Woolf. And they had a third partner. And um, when, when I took this play to an agent in New York, she got so mad that she started, she couldn't look me in the eye. She started straightening the pencils and all the objects on her desk at right angles to each other and being OCD-ish. And she said, I don't know who I could send this out. She's smoking like a house on fire, too. I don't know who I could send this out. I wouldn't send it out un- under my, I, it's like some weekend at Fire Island. And I said, well, exactly. And, and she said, no, 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 not, not this agency. We couldn't possibly do it. And then I was almost in tears because she was about to throw me out. So I said, do you know Richard Barr? And she said, of course I know Richard Barr. Why do you ask that? And I said, well, anybody who, who produced Who's Afraid, Virginia Woolf, wouldn't blink twice at this play. Would you send it to him? She said, not under my letterhead, but I'll send it to him. Well, she was, did she crow? I mean... Uh, the next day, people hardly ever read plays. You know, months goes by before you get something back from a dramaturg these days, whatever the hell that word means. And Barr called back the next day and said, I got to meet this kid. She was more stunned than anybody. She called me up and she said, You're not, are you sitting down? You're not going to believe this. I said, what? She said, Richard Barr and Edward Albee want to have a drink with you at 5 o'clock in Mr. Barr's apartment. Can you make it? I said, are you? Are you kidding me? Jesus. So I went at the village, and that was the beginning of that. They ran an experimental, they were very good about promoting young playwrights, theater space on 25 Van Damme Street. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And they put on plays, and the, and the people they put on plays by, there was John Guare and Lanford Wilson and Terrence McNally and me, and Sam Shepard, and I mean, it just went on and on and on. It was incredible. And the play f- eventually did get produced. Well, it did. It was to be five nights, kind of a word-of-mouth thing, and I sent, I asked a few friends. Uh, the first night it poured with rain, just poured with rain. I, not, not, everything bad could happen, happened. I looked out in the front of the theater, and there was a line down the block with people with umbrellas. And I said to Bob Moore, the director, I said, my God, it looks like the third act of our town. And all under those umbrellas were Richard Bernstein. I mean, no, Richard. Leonard. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Leonard Bernstein and Betty Comden and, uh, you know, I mean, Toot New York. Uh, the theater world. Jerry Robbins came, and I had met him on West Side Story, and so we embraced again. He was that he was so happy to for me, and I said, oh, "Happy for me? Well, nothing's happened yet." He said, "It will, it will, it will." So it it played those five nights. Did it get reviewed? No, but it was it w- it was they were turning people away. It stopped raining, but it, they were turning people away so much that they extended it for four more performances. That's all they could get away with. Equity, Equity said, "You have to start to pay these actors after this." They were doing it for free. But by that time, Barr had already told me that he was going to transfer it off-Broadway. This was in January of 68, and it transferred in April of 68. And it ran off-Broadway for how long? Well, it was to run 1,000 performances. Richard wanted to close it on 1,000 performance night, and I said, oh, no, let's make it 1,001 nights. So it ran 1,001 performances. Which is, what, two and a half years? Three years? Uh, Yeah, three-ish, I don't know. It was still running when the movie came out, and that was two years later. And, and more people went to see the play than they did the movie. Though, of course, over the years, the movie has oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. gained a following, yeah, too. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty much the original cast. Yes, and of course, at that time, you know, it was a studio system, and you had to have known people. Paramount tried to buy the play, 
Bob Evans, the famous Bob Evans of Chinatown and Godfather, he flew to New York and tried to pry it out of me by a, by a breakfast at the Regency Hotel. But, you know, I said, well, who are you going to put in it? And he said, oh, George Siegel. And uh, I started naming these names, you know. And I, um, I said, no, I don't think so. I, I, I'd, I'd rather get less money for it and have some control over it. He said, well, you'll never get that from anybody. But you did. Yes, because CBS was starting up a cinema wing just at that time, and they wanted to buy hot, explosive properties, and they bought this. Mark Crowley, next 30 years after Boys in the Band, you wrote several plays. Mm -hmm. Some of them got produced. Some of them didn't get produced. Mm -hmm. What brought you back to the characters? Well, you know, people don't believe me when I say that people have always been asking me to write a sequel. Richard Barr, the producer of The Boys in the Band, was one of the ones who badgered me over the years. Naturally, he wanted to produce one. He thought, you know, if one worked and I made a lot of money off of it, well, two will. And, but I just didn't have anything to say. AIDS didn't, hadn't happened, you know, yet. It was a long way between 68 and 81. The other plays that I was writing about, I wrote about my childhood and went back in time, not further. And, and that I, was Breeze from the Gulf. Yeah, that was Breeze from the Gulf. And there was a play called Remote Asylum, too, which was the most gigantic flop of them all, starring Mr. William Shatner prior to uh, Star Trek. As Michael, the Michael character? No, there was a Michael character, but he was played by an actor called Ralph Williams. And boy, do I know I'm getting old. When I last saw Ralph, he was playing Cat Mandy in the revival of Showboat. Was Shatner's acting all over the map then? or I recall no, him no, being no, no. kind he of... A, he was a fine stage actor who had been brought to Hollywood. He had quite a different career and even started out doing very classy Hollywood films. Yeah, I recall that. I recall he was before Star Trek. He was actually quite... Uh, admired. Yeah, absolutely. And a big live television actor in those days, you know, and he always did serious drama. And when he when he came out here to do films, uh, out here, I think I'm in Los Angeles, but I'm not. You know, they put him in things like The Brothers Karamazov, and uh, he always did weighty work. Now, by 81, I mean, when you could have written the sequel, of mm. course, the gay liberation movement had already begun. San Francisco seemed gay. You already had, by that point, Harvey Milk had come yeah. into power and died. Uh -huh. So conceivably, and Fire Island was going full tilt, mm -hmm. conceivably you could have done something then, but you chose not to. Oh, no, I didn't really choose not to. I was up to my armpits in other things. Very, very lightweight stuff, but nevertheless, I was producing a TV series called Heart to Heart, which I did for five years. You know, to get 22 shows out a year, you don't have time to write a play. Since you're rewriting the scripts every night that are turned in. That was a full-time, absolutely full-time gig. it was beyond a full-time job. Whatever was worked for you to keep you going, believe me, we all did. And then AIDS happened, and I guess at that point you didn't want to write it. I don't know. AIDS began immediately to take its toll on me. I mean, not like everybody, I was suspicious that I wasn't HIV positive and then going to, into full AIDS myself. But my friends did, well, particularly one that is written about in this latest play, found out that he was HIV and uh, came and told me and eventually succumbed. Now we come up to uh, the, the uh, millennium. AIDS, while certainly still a problem, terrible mm -hmm. problem, people are surviving with AIDS longer mm -hmm. and longer. Mm -hmm. What brought you back to these characters and also the decision to have all of them survive AIDS? But who knows what secretly is Michael's status in, in the play. He never reveals that. They do say about some of the other people that existed in the first play, what do you suppose ever became of them? And, and it's assumed they've died, yeah. Well, he, the answer is, he's probably dead, or if not, just lost in the night somewhere. How hard was it for you to get back into the state of, the, of mind of the 30-year-old Los Angeles up-and-comer who actually wrote 
the boys in the band to, to be able to go back and remold those characters? Well, you know, every play that I've ever written that have been successful or not successful, I've just started the first page one, page two, page three, page four, and then type the end. I just wrote it from beginning to end. I never wrote the structure down on a, on a pad or anything. It just came in my head automatically. This play was generated by the fact that the character who is HIV, who does it obviously is going to die of AIDS. Well, I don't know how obvious it is in the play, but that's what happened in life. He came to me. He was my best friend. He came to me and told me he was sick, and he'd been sick for months without telling me. Well, we had this really surreal scene. He came over to unburden himself, to tell me something very serious. And what happened? We got into a fierce argument with each other as to why he hadn't told me sooner. It made him more furious, made me more furious. It did resolve with, I'll be there for you. You know that. But nevertheless, he slammed out of the apartment, angrier than he was when he came in. And I was furious, and then I calmed down. I immediately, I mean, I didn't close the door and, and go to, to type out the scene, but a day or two later, it occurred to me that what was said between us, or the essence of what was said, was a scene. I, I, maybe it's the one I play, I don't know. I didn't know what it was. So I wrote it all down, and it was very long, much longer than in, than it turned out to be a scene in this play because it's been trimmed a lot. But I wrote it down, and I put it away. And then when I came about two years later to start to write this play and start at page one, I got that out, that piece, and I thought, this goes in this play somewhere. This is a piece of this puzzle, but I don't know where. Initially, I thought it was the last scene of the play. It's got to end with that. Ultimately, it wasn't. It was a piece of the puzzle that fit in somewhere else. And in it went, and the play went on and finishes somewhere somewhere else. Well, there's one other element to the play, which is the interaction between younger gay men and the older ones. Mm -hmm. Does that reflect on actual conversations you've had? Yeah, because I, you know, I was a raging alcoholic, so I went to a 12-step recovery program. Finally, when everybody, you know, stopped speaking to me and said, we can't have you to a house, you know, you are like a bull in a china closet, either verbally or physically, and uh, you better do something about this. So um, I did, and I'm 14 years sober, and... Uh, then um, I met, I, I listened to share after share after share by people who were young enough to be my, my sons or daughters or my grandchildren, you know, it seemed like to me. But I heard about their world, and I got seriously involved with some of them. And some of them are still my friends, of course, young and my contemporaries. That's still a lot to put in a play. Well, we, we fudge it here and there. You know? <laughs> well, The Men from the Boys, I saw it on the opening night of previews, and this is kind of a technical question. You were sitting there in the back row, and you spent the entire time, because I would glance back. Sighing loudly. Well, well, no, you were busy taking notes from the beginning to the end. <gasps> what was on that yellow pad? Oh, it was probably faster, slower, louder. Deep stuff like that. <laughs> there was, so there's nothing, nothing on the order of, oh, damn, this doesn't work. I'm going to cut it or anything yeah, like I that. Yeah, I thought there were lines that didn't work that, you know, just lay there. I thought, get, get the, that out of there, for God's sake. Well, what kind of changes do you make once the play has been rehearsed? I mean, you're not feeding new lines and old lines and removing huge chunks, well, are you? Well, I was only, I, you know, I live in Los Angeles, so I've had to come up here every time for uh, important events like the first, uh, well, all the casting, first of all, and then once all the guys were cast, the night of the first reading around a table, and uh, we read the play through, and then, of course, they had the opportunity to question, grill me. I mean, I was really on the interrogation seat about their character. That's all the actors ever want to talk about. Yeah, I've been part of the process. At the same time, I would learn things. They would point out, they pointed out, this couldn't have happened. 
if this happened, and I would see that there were mistakes, you know, chronologically or just technical shit, and we fixed it that night, some of them. I'd ask them, well, what would you do about it, you know? By the time I saw it, of course, it was, I don't want to say it was written in stone, but it was well, I don't Close. think it still is written in stone. I saw some stuff last night that I, I want, I'm going to ask Ed Decker today if we could change, but I'm afraid he might tell me, well, you're just going to throw the actors by putting this in. Let's, let's you know, well, say, as Bob Moore, who was the original director, would say, always say to me when I came to him with these late hour ideas, these brilliant ideas that were the boat had sailed, but... I still had ideas. He'd say, save it for the printed version. What about if you're, if you're watching it, let's say, and you, you look, and there's, there's a young character who offers an explanation to, to Michael about mm-hmm. his behavior. Let's say one day you look at it and you say, you know, I don't like that explanation. I want a new one. Could mm. you put it in? I'm afraid I'm more superficial than that. I just hear a new joke. So at that point, you're satisfied. I mean, you're not completely satisfied, but you're pretty satisfied. Yeah, who's ever completely satisfied? When a play is at that point, I mean, I know with the book, most writers will eventually say, okay, it's in print, it's my child, it's sent out into the world to sink or swim. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the, the way, that way, or do you think that 10 years from now you could say, damn, I need to do a rewrite? Well, in the case of the boys in the band and the story that I just told about the director when I would come with new ideas or something, and he'd say, save it for the printed version. And that, that would be it. That would add up. And then I did put it in the printed version. And not only did I put it in the printed version, I thought it was absolutely you know, mandatory that I restore the cuts that were made in rehearsal. Well, oh, to my eternal horror... They are put in stone in that play. And I go see productions, and I thought, oh, my God, that was never even played off-Broadway. Where did they get this material? And I looked, and it's in, the, it's in the published manuscript. And I thought, oh, God, why did I do that? Why didn't I just leave it alone? Why did I put all that crap back, you know? It's so slut. No wonder we cut it. It slows everything down. But once actors read that and they get it on, I remember the lead in the revival came up to me and said, well, now I understand all the motivation for Michael's character. It's all here. You cut it out of the original. And the movie's even cut even more. I mean, at least a third of the play is missing from the movie. Nobody's ever complained. Well, they don't know. They don't know, and what you don't know doesn't hurt you. <laughs> so the, the men from the boys, you wrote it, and then what do you do with it then? I mean, was, were there a lot of people saying we have to read it? Well, I it, guess or? people like Richard Dodds and the other critics in this town from the Chronicle, etc., are going to tell me what to do with it. I have a feeling I know what some of them will tell me to do with it, but... Well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. And should, now, that brings an, an interesting point. Should you care? I mean, a lot of people, there are two, three kinds of reviews. Reviews that review the play, reviews that give the plot away, and reviews that review the play based on what they would have written. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with those, and how do you separate them out, and do you even listen to, to them, or do you kind of go, screw it, I'm the artist, they're just doing whatever the hell they're doing? You know, there have been critics whom I respected that have reviewed my plays, like Walter Kerr, John Simon, and they're not idiots. Uh, Walter Kerr is dead now, of course. He taught me in college. So you do listen to people you respect, and sometimes it, you know, if they say it's, you know, it's draggy, you know, it's a whole long section in the second act where you just wish you could blow your brains out if they didn't get on with it. Well, Not going to happen here. Not going to happen after here. You, you go back and you look at that section and you say, yeah, indeed, there's some cuts here I could make, you know. And the director screams at you, well, that's what I've been telling you all along. But, you know, you wanted every comma and every I dotted and every T crossed. First time you see the play with an audience and they laugh, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they laugh loud or they don't. Are you pretty sure they're going to laugh then? No, I just breathe a sigh of relief that they know it's funny. It's particularly hard with this play because, you know, it opens on such a serious 
tableau vivant, you know, of, of the boys all just arranged in this with a heavy rainstorm pouring outside. So it looks like you're in for, I don't know what. But it's a very Largo. funny. It's a very funny play, just like the first one is yeah, extremely funny. But if funny. Bernard doesn't get his first laugh, it throws the cast. Really? You know? They, or at least they, they know what kind of that people are sitting on their hands, or their, you know, they've got their vocal cords choked off in the audience, or something. So you're you're listening. You're listening for the laughs. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm listening for that particular one because it's about half a minute into the play. And if they don't laugh, it's a, it's a, a terrible signal that they're they're going to be reluctant to laugh <laughs> for the ones that are coming ahead. You know, when you're sitting there, do you know what the audience is going to be like? Do you get a sense of whether they like the play or not? Oh yeah, if they're restless and inattentive, or if in fact they leave, and that's happened to me when I wrote for reasons that remain unclear ten years ago about a sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, people were walking out of that in droves. And in a huff, you know, they said to me, how dare you write such a sacrilegious piece as this, you know? Well, it had happened to me, so I figured it happened to some other people, too. You know, it turned out that it had. Some reviewer, I forgot what he was writing about the other day, I was reading it. He said, if people don't walk out, it's kind of a bad sign. But if someone walks out, it sometimes means that you've hit the right nerve. Well, that's true. I mean, I think art ought to, ought to inflame and uh, make you think, uh, even if you sit still and keep your seat, uh, you may, your mental processes may be spinning, you know. But if it doesn't stimulate you in some way, what good is it? You know? Harper Lee, in 1960, 61, wrote To Kill a Mockingbird in discussing it with people who know her. Mm-hmm. My question is always, why did she never write something else? And the answer is, well, how do you top that? Did you ever feel, after the reception of Boys in the Band, did you ever feel like, I have to top this? Did you ever, did you hit I felt that I had to top that, yeah, with the second play, or nobody would pay attention. But the second play came two years after the first one. It was brutally treated, excuse me, and... You know, even the New York Times did something un- unconscionable in sending a stringer or getting some guy in a writing department in L.A. to cover the play, and he just brutalized it on the arts and leisure section of the New York Times the following Sunday. So there was no way we could even work on the play, fix it, and, and it have any kind of future. It just played to a trapped audience for seven more weeks of subscribers. That was remote asylum. Remote asylum. And now here you are. With William Shatner. <laughs> Starring William Shatner. Now here you are 35 years later and you have the men from The Boys. Let's assume that the reviews are, are respectable to good, which mm-hmm. I think they will be. Mm-hmm. Where do you take it? What do you do? Do you wait for the phone call? Oh, do you well, make the phone uh, calls? As far as New York is concerned, I mean, it may Samuel French may <laughs> call me this afternoon and say... We'd like to print the stock and amateur rights, and therefore they will farm it out to all uh, national and international sources that want to do plays. And there are a lot more gay theaters in the world than when the, boy, oh, when the Boys in the Band was written. So that would be fine. But what would even be finer would be if it gets some sort of respectable notices, they definitely will catch the ears of uh, the Big Apple uh, honchos, you know, and they might come out and take a look. Then there would be some talk about doing it. But it's a particularly expensive play to do because even though it's one set, the original apartment, it has 10 actors in it, and that's anathema in New York now. They want plays with five people in it, no more than five. Most producers won't even read the script if, you, if it's got more than five. They really want two, like a two-hander. They really want a one-man show, you know. What about HBO or Showtime? This is, you see, a sequel to a play that was bought by CBS. So CBS do something for crisis. So CBS still would own the rights to this? It owns half the play. CBS in perpetuity owns one half of the characters and any sequels. Mark Crowley, now that you've written The Man from the Boys, what are you working on now? 
Eloise Takes a Bath, which is a children's book. Well, that's it's, come out. It's published this month, but, you know, we, we still... Uh, been doing a lot of book signings. And what about after that? I mean, you were writing another play? Are you thinking well, of writing Eloise your memoirs? Big success, they might want Eloise in Hollywood, which we've been talking about for 40 years. Well, what about Eli- Eloise meets the boys in the band? Oh, well, she could keep going forever in every situation, you know. <laughs> I don't think the estate would quite like her Eloise meeting the boys in the band, though she has and doesn't know it. Uh <laughs> Or maybe she does. She's a crafty little thing. I would like to write one more play. I certainly have an idea for one. And I've done some piddling work on it and just shoved it into a folder. It would be awful to die and just leave uh, a two-thirds completed play. But I, I can't. You know, the inspiration comes when it comes, and when it don't, you're just dry for a long time. You've heard about that, writer's block. So you you then do something else, you know, Eloise in Hollywood, which came to my head immediately. But I doubt that they would want... See, the wonderful thing about Eloise Takes a Bath was that it was actually written by Kay Thompson, and she didn't like it and put it away for 40 years. So all I did was edit a manuscript that was as thick as War and Peace, you know, into two or three lines. (laughs) Some pages just say, splosh! So other than that, you just wait for inspiration. Well, yeah, or until you you know you're so you know you're driven mad by doing nothing, and you have to just go in the room and say, "Well, I'm I'm way beyond being hired in Hollywood. Hell, they won't even hire thirty five year olds. Ageism is so awful there." But listen, if you're over thirty five, you can't be in front of the camera, and it, these days, not even behind the camera. There was a time when, you know, behind the camera, there were some older, very respected people. And that's one of the reasons why everything that's coming out is crap. You said it, I didn't. A live stream of The Men from the Boys, directed by Zachary Quinto, airs on Friday, June 26, 2020, at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Playbill.com Pride Plays. For more information about other events, In the Pride Plays series, go to Playbill.com. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. 